This is a story about betrayal, meth addiction, law-breaking, and above all, redemption. Just a word of warning before we start, it contains some graphic references to drug-taking and isn't suitable for everyone. Growing up isn't easy. No one ever said it was. Trying to find out who you are, where you fit into the world, at the same time as your friends are struggling with their own stuff, it's hard. Janet Balcom grew up in the small town of Ruawai in the Kaipara district. And when she was just 13 years old, she drew the short straw in the friendship stakes. She had a best friend and a wider group of girls they used to hang out with. Until that was one afternoon, sitting on her bed sorting through the stuff in her school bag, she found something she wasn't expecting, a letter written by every girl in her circle of friends, including her best friend. They'd sort of, you know, developed a bit more um, quickly than I had, and I, I just was happy doing simple kid stuff, and they'd sort of moved on to the teenage stuff. So it was just um, picking every single little bit of my life and my person and my personality and my identity and who I thought I was and assassinating it piece by piece in an actual uh, written document which I put in my bag. I actually went into shock when I read it and then my mother came into the room and saw me with this thing in my hand and I was just frozen and and I instantly just tried to hide it because shame shame came in, I'd, I'd accepted it as truth, and then shame came in and 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 forbade me from um, telling anybody else because I thought if, if anybody else knows they're going to know how, how horrible a person I am and all of that stuff and, and I really will have nobody left. And so um, basically I was a different person after that. I didn't want to go to school because that was where all of this was unfolding and um, and I had to keep going to school you know I had to keep waking up every day and everywhere I went there I was <laughs> and I was the problem and so what do you do with that when when you're 13 years old that letter represented a crossroads for Janet for a teenaged girl it was a powerful rejection and if she was all wrong she needed to make herself all right that meant a complete reinvention a reinvention into a person no one around her recognized so it became a real nightmare for mum to try and wake me up and get me to school and that sort of thing and uh, once I got over you know the grief I mean I think the grief was always there but uh, yeah, anger, and then rebellion, and no, and and so the uh, the upshot of the anger was okay. I'm not going to let anybody hurt me like that anymore. So I'll drink a cup of concrete and harden up, and then nobody can hurt me because I just don't care anymore. And so I got really hard, or I pretended to be really hard. But the thing was, when you build a wall um, to keep the enemy out or to keep uh, pain and hurt out, then then you actually, um, you become a prisoner in your own life because you shut yourself in as well. The second thing was uh, the mask, which was the makeup. It went on with a shovel. So I just started looking like a hoe. <laughs> and then the clothes. 
custom made leathers, a little bit boho, a little bit, uh, a lot, a lot Westie Mettler, you know, and so it was just the classic um, Westie kind of skank look. By her early 20s, that hardened mask was the gateway to a relationship, one that she'd stick with through thick and thin, through meth addiction, through police busts and through prison for 11 years. It was a defining relationship that managed to take root despite a less than promising beginning at an Auckland pub. I hated him on sight. Um, there was just something about him, I suppose it would be arrogance. He was way too confident for himself, so I couldn't see why he would really be that confident. And he had a really, like, a business shirt on, and I thought, well, I don't like pen pushes for a start, you know, that's just not happening. And so I told him that, and I said, oh, you're just a spoiled rich kid, and I hate spoiled rich kids, and, you know, you're a you're a pen pusher and I hate pen pushers. <laughs> and then you ripped off his shirt right there in the in the bar, in the Shakespeare Tavern, eh? And uh, far out it was just like, um, picture city, colourful boy. <laughs> and so he was fully tattooed to the max. And I didn't want to show that I, I, I actually was quite impressed. <laughs> I thought to myself, well, that's better. But I still don't like you. His name was Mark, and Janet might not have liked him, but he liked her. He pursued her relentlessly. Yeah, he did He did quite hard for a couple of weeks, and I thought, well, if you think you're stubborn, I'll, I'll show you a thing or two about stubborn. So I was like, no, I'm not going to go out with you. Just go away, and I was quite rude. <laughs> and um, eventually he just would not stop calling, and so I caved, and I thought, oh, I'll go out with him once, have lunch, and then it'll be, he'll give it a rest but it didn't happen like that, so yeah, we went out for lunch and had a um, big session and I came back to work off my face and and I think I just got sucked into it through the drugs, really. But there was an element of the um, mysterious about him as well and and I, I think I might have wanted to, to find out what made him tick, in a way, to find out if I really did hate him as much as I thought I did, just on first impressions. But that didn't work so well, because I fell in love with him. When Janet said they'd had a session, she meant they started off with a main course of meth and followed it up with a big stinky joint. She'd had meth before, but she'd always thought she could take it or leave it. This stuff, though, it was different. It was just um, like every happy hormone, serotonin, all the rest of it, every single positive feel-good hormone that you have in your entire body gets released all at the same time. And you feel crystal clear, like uh, like the sharpest person in the world. You're, it's like you, you're seeing everything, you're not missing a tiny little thing. Everything sounds amazingly um, lucid and sharp and you're having incredible ideas, incredible thoughts. You're getting incredible understanding from what's going on around you. You just feel unbelievably good. Your whole body goes into overdrive. Your heart speeds up. Everything speeds up. You just feel an overwhelming love for people, like every single person you meet. It's like you want to know everything about their lives. You want to know how you can help them. When she got back to work after that first lunch... 
<laughs> I was like the best typist in the West. <laughs> they made their lunch dates a regular thing, but a few months into the relationship, she discovered things weren't exactly what they seemed. I was suspecting that someone was ironing his shirts because I knew he wasn't the ironing type. And so it was one of those women's instinct things. So I asked him straight up um, at, at lunch one day and, and I said, um, look, I'm, I'm single, are you? And he goes, no, I'm not. Not only was he married, he had a young child and another on the way. By the time I got back to work... I was actually having a total hysterical meltdown and I had to be put into a separate room and then I, I just had to go home because I couldn't be consoled at all. There was this thing inside me that went, well, far out, man, you, you've you never gone after married guys and what the heck are you doing? You know, you're better than that. Your mum and dad brought you up better than that and they fully did. That was the point where I had to, to, a decision to make and... I loved him then, and I just couldn't actually make the right decision at that point, which is really horrible. Janet and Mark eventually moved in together. For the first year or two, they were office workers by day and drug fiends in their own time. And then we decided, oh, this sucks. This these, this work thing, this work lark is cramping our lifestyle a bit. <laughs> so we um, both quit our jobs and just became full-time outlaws. took a while, but Janet became bored out of her brain not working. She started office temping. Mark, meanwhile, eventually went from dealing marijuana to growing it to finally cooking meth. It was a gradual process of evolving over time, like the frog cooking in the water. I never really was fully um, aware of any details at any given time because the less you know, the less um, you can be held accountable for so you know it's ask no questions tell no lies and that's the modus operandi. For Janet being a frog in the water didn't just mean that she slowly got used to the drug making culture surrounding her it also meant that she soon found herself with a raging meth habit for two years she blasted the stuff straight into her veins. My hair just went lank and my skin I suppose well it wasn't glowing you could you could fairly say <laughs> There were um, like big boils, eruptions, that just, you couldn't cover up. And eventually so many came and went that they actually did leave scars. Her weight dropped to around 45 or 50 kg. I looked a bit slim, very slim, probably a little bit um, feral. But I mean, I still groomed myself and dressed like a corporate woman and all that sort of a thing when I wasn't my other person, which was the Wild West um, ho. But I, I think the worst thing about my appearance would have been my eyes, because they were just so dark. By far the most horrific aspect of being a meth addict was the come down. It's not being on meth that is the dangerous, horrible part of being a meth addict. It's when you don't have any. It's, it's, that's when 
the trouble happens because your body is then being depleted of every feel-good hormone and those hormones don't just make you feel good they actually do real jobs in our bodies and so when they're all completely gone you've got functions that you have to actually perform to everyday functions in your body to fulfill your life and and just to exist but but you haven't got what you need to do that and so there's just this unbelievable feeling of devastation and uh depletion it's like you're flatlining and you get, you're not eating when you're on, on pee and that. So you're getting dehydrated and you're getting uh, malnourished and you're not sleeping. And so it's just like the perfect storm. And so the feeling of when, when you're coming off it is like, the, there's the physical thing and then there's the emotional outrage of, of how bad you actually feel and how on earth are you, are you going to cope getting through this day or whatever it is feeling like this bad. And then any little thing will trigger you off. Janet says the following incident is a mild example of what she was like after a meth binge. We had to go off and play war games out at Kumu and I wasn't happy about that because I couldn't be bothered even getting out of bed and I had a splitting headache and it was just not a good day. And so I ended up having to drive us out there and uh, yeah, it was torrential rain. We were aquaplaning. It was very dangerous. Out ahead, holding up the fast lane of Auckland's northwestern motorway, was a beaten-up old car crawling along at a snail's pace. Janet screamed obscenities and only got more incensed when she realised they weren't even trying to get out of her way. She sped up until her bumper touched theirs, then, pressing the pedal to the metal, she rammed them forward. When that didn't work, she rammed them again. In the driving rain, with sheets of water on the road making the conditions deadly, she bore down on the car until its driver finally managed to pull into the next lane. Then she sped on in a meth-deprived fury. Yeah, it was a bit... It was, You know, I'd become that person that I hated. You know, I had become that monster. But but I, it wasn't even rock bottom. It was years before I actually t- totally hit rock bottom. Janet describes herself at this time as a functioning addict, but things were overwhelmingly grim. She was estranged from her family, had no girlfriends, was in reality a crackhead with a volcanic field of eruptions on her face and an appetite for meth that couldn't be satisfied. She'd got to the point where she shot meth into her veins and the toilet cubicles of the offices she worked in. When, as a 13-year-old, she morphed into someone her family didn't recognise, she still knew, deep down, who the real Janet was. Now she'd even lost sight of that. She knew something had to change, and after two years of meth addiction, it was Mark who suggested they give up. The idea was that Janet would kick it first, then she would help Mark to give it up. Janet was working in the typing pool of a recruitment agency and couldn't take time off work, so they booked a hotel room near to her work to make things easier. It wasn't too bad the first day. Second day was starting to get a little bit crunchy. By the third day, I was just feral, and I didn't give a shit about work or anything. I just said, OK, I'm not going, and I was on my last warning there. So um, anyway, Mark said, no, no, come on, you can go, you can do it. And he helped me get there. And I got through the day and then it just seemed to to come uphill from that day. Um, Getting out of the door and getting to work was the worst part. But he also um, said, 
I could go to a shop at lunchtime every day of that week and choose a nice outfit, put it behind the counter, and he'd go in and buy it for me. So that was an incentive too. I think the physical withdrawal didn't probably take me that long, but the emotional and psychological withdrawal took me a lot longer. It was horrific having to go back to home. Our place was like party central, um, and it was in my face, and, and so I became the whole joke like, Oh, Janet, do you still do coffee? <laughs> but, you know, I am quite stubborn. And I did, I, I, that did help. But that was a real, real difficult, long process. It might have been part of their original deal, but Mark didn't go on to give it up too. And even though Janet was no longer addicted to meth, everything else in her life remained the same. There was one thing I couldn't give up. Ever. And that was Mark. We were hopelessly codependent and it was a toxic relationship. Yes, we had fun and happy times and stuff like that still, but it was very, very unhealthy. We inflicted mortal injuries on each other. I gave as good as I got, but neither of us could leave. And so we were stuck in this, this existence. A couple of years later, things stepped up a notch in Mark's expanding drug business. It wasn't long before Mark went, we need a front for where this money's coming from, so we'll create this business, we'll call it Paradox Graphics. And I was so desperate by this stage, there was such a strong desire in me for substance. (laughs) Now I know what you're thinking. (laughs) Not substance abuse, but, but to be a woman of substance or to have some substance in my life. And really what it was, was it all came back to identity. I needed something real. I needed to be doing something proper because I was not having any respect for myself anymore. They had a friend who was a graphic artist, and he taught Janet the ropes. So I used this front of a company to throw myself into. I learned how to be a Mac operator, and then I brought in my corporate corporate clients, and we started doing their work, and we we serviced a really well-known corporate bank for six years, doing all their research reports and stuff like that. Things went great for a while, until suddenly they didn't. To cut a long story short, one day when Janet was out in Mark's BMW, a couple of lads in a Lada ran a red and did $20,000 worth of damage to the BMW. To make things worse, Janet had told Mark she would take care of the insurance but hadn't got around to it. So Mark enlisted the help of a friend, and that friend and Janet took the larder driver on a long trip around the Coromandel Peninsula trying to find his parents. They wanted him to be held accountable for the damage he'd caused. It all came to nothing, and in the end, they let him off on his word that he would make good the debt. That incident soon came back to kick Janet squarely in the backside. As she tells it, she was in the bathroom getting ready for a business meeting. It was a very important meeting for me, and I was dressed in my best Italian wool dress with my high heels on, brushing my teeth. I was just looking in the mirror, you know, doing my mental prep, and then... Two cops appeared, one on each elbow, in my reflection, in my bathroom. And they said, you're under arrest for items relating to kidnapping. And I went, oh, cool. Well, that's easy. You've got the wrong place. And they went, no, actually, we've got the right place. 
And so they just um, went through the process of arresting me for like 13 other charges as well. <laughs> and then opened the door and popped 12 cops and I don't know how many dogs and ladders and torches. And next minute the dogs are all over the pool table and up in the ceiling and bringing down loads and loads of dope and meth, big bags of meth and um, <laughs> guns and things. An associate had been counterfeiting $100 bills which were also discovered, along with an array of guns hanging on the walls. So instead of going to her business meeting, she found herself in remand at Mount Eden Prison. She arrived... In my beautiful Italian wool dress with my shoes, and the old butch guard goes, well, you can't, can't, you can't wear that in here. You know, she looked at me like I was some kind of idiot, like, what, are you, what were you thinking wearing that in here? Then she gave me a... A de-lousing bath, lest I infect the other prisoners. I was just annoyed because I couldn't be bothered. It was, look, I'm telling you, I haven't got scabies or lice or whatever you think that I've got. <laughs> I'm telling you now, let's just save this. Save the flea bath. <laughs> but no. Then it was time to meet her cellmates. One was an arsonist, one was a, a heroin addict. I can't remember what the others were in there for. They were pretty tough. You know, and, and underneath it all, I wasn't tough. I was still a little country girl, you know. And just like all these gang members, they look tough as well. And they're just little boys under it as well. You know, hurt. And um, just want to be loved. And and so I was like, hi, I'm Janet. And they, they just ignored me. <laughs> and I thought, okay, sweet. So that's the way it's going to be. So I just kept to myself, but... Um, only for a little while, and then one of them, one of them said, "Oh, do you know how to cast on?" Because <laughs> this nun came in with this wool, <laughs> and they were knitting, and I was like, "What, you tough girls? You're knitting, <laughs> you hypocrites!" So they um, asked me if I could cast on, and I was like, "Gee, I hope so. <laughs> I don't want to get my head bashed in because I can't remember how to cast on." By this time in her life. Janet had very little contact with her parents. She didn't tell them she was in the slammer. Mark's parents came up with the $100,000 bail for them both. But soon enough, the whole world knew about the pickle she was in. She was at the part-time job that she'd taken to make ends meet when... My workmate came up and said, Oh, Janet, and, and she laid down the Herald newspaper and there was this article which was um, quite large, really. <laughs> Um, on the second page or something like that and she laid it down she said oh Janet have you seen the paper today and I went no and I was like go away can't you see I'm working and then um she went oh um well maybe you should take a look and I went um oh yeah and my fingers just slowly came to a halt on the keyboard as I read the charges Three Aucklanders have been charged with offences involving drugs, counterfeiting, possession of forged banknotes, demanding with menaces, and threatening to kill. Janet Lisa Balcom, aged 28, a word processor operator of the Grafton. unlawful possession of a 308 rifle, a 55 Colt semi-automatic pistol, and a 9mm amphetamines for supply, possession of cannabis for supply, and possession of cannabis. Hmm. And so I went, okay, um, that's awkward. And then it was like, Janet! Hey boss. <laughs> so I had to do the walk of shame. So I had about two seconds to get my head together before I had to um, answer the questions. Um, what do you say? <laughs> I can't remember what his question was, but I remember what I said. Um, it was just a misunderstanding. 
Hmm. It was like you better, you better keep your nose clean, um, for lack of a better <laughs> phrase, <laughs> or else you're out of here. The case took a year to get to court. By then, all the charges against Janet had been dropped, except for one relating to kidnap, which was reduced to detaining with consent under duress. Years later, she discovered that her criminal record hadn't been amended to reflect the reduced charge. It still reads, kidnaps for gain. She was sentenced to 100 hours community service. For his crimes, Mark served two years in prison. Their relationship lasted the distance. Janet threw herself into building the legal side of Paradox Graphics. And when Mark was released, he threw himself back into his drug business. So it was life as usual, except for one tiny thing that soon was not so tiny. I had a split second moment where I thought that I would have a baby and so I missed one pill. That's all it took, just one pill. I was not, not excited, no. No, I was actually um, really shocked. Yeah, I just felt completely unready. I was confronted, you see, with, with the state of my life when I saw the results of my pregnancy test and I had to go, holy crap. Um, I can't even look after myself. What was I thinking? And how on earth, what's this going to look like? It was terrifying and then I couldn't deal with it. So I ignored my pregnancy. I did go to the midwife, but I, I didn't want to know if it was a boy or a girl and I didn't um, go to antenatal classes. I thought they were for wimps. And then um, I just kept working. I was a workaholic because that was my identity. I was like eight months pregnant. And um, I had a dream and I saw my baby's face right in front of my face like that. And all I could really see was his eyes and they were the gorgeous blue aquamarine of the most tropical lake. And and his laughter was laughing, just a melody of just belly laugh, you know, a, a baby's belly laugh. And, this, and the laughter in his eyes right in my face. And I thought, well, okay, I could wake up and go, that was just a dream, but I knew it wasn't because it hit me in the heart. And I understood that I'd just met my baby. And, and it wasn't just that, it was, I was confronted. And it was this question, I, I woke up with this big question, how long's it been? How long has it been? How long's it been since you've laughed? How long's it been since you've even been happy? And it made me accept him and be, and, and be a mum and be ready to be a mum. The day after Janet's dream, the drug squad was back. Men in black flooded through the doors. Every drawer, every cupboard in the house was overturned. They found what they were looking for. Mark was arrested. Janet sat with her unborn baby and wept. She gave birth to her son, called Rock, not long after. 
that was just as miraculous as when I saw my baby's face in the dream. The midwife just chucked him up on my chest and his eyes were open and we just stared at each other. And he went, so you're it? And I went, so you're it? And we went, yeah. And, and it was like, sweet, yeah. <laughs> it was so precious. And he was so beautiful. Her baby might have arrived, but the chaos that was her life was exactly the same, as crazy and as unhappy as it had always been. While on bail awaiting his next court case, it was business as usual for Mark. It was during this period that Janet visited one of his meth labs for the first and last time. She took baby rock where angels fear to tread. The smell of chemicals was indescribable. I'm not proud of that. It was just so stupid of me. It, it's like a volatile place. It could go up for no reason at any moment without provocation. Anything can just blow at any moment. And that's just something that a complete bimbo does. But that just showed the depth of my codependency. It was during this time, too, that Mark had a standoff with one of the gangs he cooked meth for. He warned Janet to expect a visit. He told her they usually kill the women and kids, kidnap the meth cook, and make him work for free until they were done with him. Then they'd kill him, too. He slept with a loaded gun under his pillow. By then, they'd been together almost 11 years. I was um, an empty suit. I was just a dead thing inside, I'm emotionally dead to everything. The gang attack didn't come to pass. Instead, it was something as tiny and as invisible as a microbe that brought things to a head when baby Rock was one year old. He got, he got ill, he got Campylobacter and that was no joke. So he was two weeks of um, both ends going and then I got it and then I had two weeks of both ends going and I was already a skeleton when that happened just because I was so unhappy in my life. And um, it got to the point where I became so ill I could not get up off the floor and... My, I think I was in the early stages of organ failure through dehydration because I hadn't gone to the doctor. I didn't know what, what was happening really. Um, Mark was getting ready to go to jail again, so he was just stepping over me like I was some log on the ground. He was depressed. And I said to him, um, why don't you look after us? Because I realised I couldn't make one more bottle for my boy anymore. I couldn't actually do one more. I'd got to the end of the road. And he said, why don't you ring your parents? And I thought, um, man, I would never have thought of that in a million years. I would have just died on the floor. You know, I mean, that's where, where you get to. That's where I'd got to. That's where women get to that are in toxic relationships. And he wasn't physically abusive to me or anything like that, but the emotional stuff is just as bad as the physical stuff. And so I'd believe the lies that I can't do it on my own and all of those other ones. So I just rang my folks and Dad said, OK, well, I'll come and get you, but just pack your bag and I'll be there in a couple of hours. I couldn't even pack my bag. I couldn't even get off the ground. But by the time he arrived two hours later, I'd managed to pull myself up onto the couch because I didn't want my dad finding me on the floor. 
So um, when I left, um, I thought that I was just going to be a couple of days. You know, I said, I'll see you in a couple of days when I'm better. Because I still couldn't tolerate uh, the thought of leaving. And I wasn't, didn't want to leave. It was like, well, this is my life. I can't imagine being without him. And then I never went back. Suddenly able to look at her life from a distance, Janet realised this was her chance to make a change. She grabbed it with both hands. It's now more than 15 years since she took baby rock and left her old life in the dust. None of it was easy. I had to come out of that life and be a part. I had to leave all my friends, my job, my, my work, and my home, my man, everything in one fell swoop. And then I had to stay away. I had to stay away for a long time while I forged a new place to stand and became strong in myself. And, uh, and working through uh, custody issues and relational issues and things like that um, were very difficult when I wasn't strong. But we got there. We, we totally got there. Janet found the life answers she was looking for in Christianity. These days she lives back in her small hometown, working as a graphic artist and also as a writer. She maintains a warm friendship with Mark and Rock sees his dad whenever he can. One of the hardest parts of her rehabilitation was dealing with the guilt for the pain and hurt she had caused others. When she felt strong enough, she contacted Mark's ex-wife and two children. She said, I am so unbelievably sorry. And I wrote them letters and I rang them up and I went and visited them and I did it probably three times each one. I, I just was just so ashamed of myself. And they were just so beautiful to me and they just said, hey, no worries. It was just grace all round. And now, you know, we're just family and um, I love them dearly. And then there was her own family. You know... They're so amazing. I, I said I'm so sorry for all the, the pain and the agony, the heartbreak, the worry. Goodness knows, you can't, there aren't even words to describe it all, eh? The hardest part was me forgiving myself, and if they had not forgiven me, then I don't know if I ever could have forgiven myself. Once she had enough perspective on her past, Janet wrote a book. She called it The Wild Side, and through it, she wanted to give others hope. I've seen parents... The looks in their eyes when they say, oh, my, my granddaughter or my, my son or my daughter, they're on pay. And you can just see they have just lost that person. They, they're as good as dead to them because they've got no hope. They've, they're actually buried. They're, they're dead and buried already. And, and I have to say to them, hey, no, it's, it doesn't have to be like that. There is a way. There is hope. In 2014, Janet met media executive Ray Curl. I met him at a book convention. And I had my I was there with my banner, like, um, and it said, Story of Hope from Meth Addiction or whatever. And he just saw that and he, he went, Oh, wow, I know some people like that really need some hope in that area. And so he came over and we started talking and then... He took my book and he read it that night and he just was blown away. And so we just kept communicating and over three weeks over the keyboard we fell in love. It was like a chick flick. 
I hate chick flicks, by the way. I'd rather have a war movie. But um, <laughs> that was what it was like. <laughs> and we got married in like about six weeks. Everyone thought, oh yeah, they're just desperate. <laughs> But no, it was actually a lot more to it than that. <laughs> and he is um, an amazing, amazing blessing. More than I could ever have hoped for or imagined. been listening to The Lip. I'm Megan McChesney. If you want to know more about Janet's story, her book The Wild Side is available in a range of bookshops and also on Amazon. She also has a website where you can check out both The Wild Side and her other books. It's at wildsidepublishing.com. There are photos to go with Janet's story on our website, thelippodcast.kiwi. We release an extraordinary true tale every month and you can find all our other episodes on thelippodcast.kiwi. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher and the new current affairs and culture website noted.co.nz. Thanks to everyone who's listened, written in and generally supported this little podcast that could. It's an unbelievably long process to put one of these stories together and if you want to support us more, you can do so by sharing the story with others, going into iTunes and leaving a review, liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter. That's it from me this time round. See you next month.